Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Wednesday, March 21st, 2018, starting at 3.20 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 149th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Tim Terriker about the uh, who is the creator of the Mountain Astrologer magazine, and we're going to be discussing the history of the publication and some interesting stories surrounding its production. Uh, hi, Tim. Welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, this has been a long time in coming, and so I'm glad I was finally able to get you on the show because the uh, the Mountain Astrologer magazine uh, has become such a, a mainstay in the astrological community over the past few decades that I've really been wanting to do a show to talk to you about its origins and and how it came about and and how you originally got it together, and then just some of the things that you've learned. Over or the sort of process of doing it. So you've been doing it for over 30 years now, right? Yes, 30 years last November. Okay. So you just celebrated the, the 30th anniversary a few months ago, and you're actually coming up on the 200th issue in just a few months, right? Yes, that'll be the August-September issue 2018. It'll be issue number 200. It's hard wow. to believe. It's hard to believe. Yeah, <laughs> really. that's crazy. It's really um, hard to believe. So it's a you put out uh, an an issue every two months, and so there's six uh, issues a month, and you've been doing that that same sort of rate for thirty years now, right? Well, six issues a year now, as uh, before from 1992 until 96, we were doing nine issues a year, and one year we actually did ten, and then we that cured the general insanity of doing so many. The 10 was the cure. So we went to six. It just became uh, necessary. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I so, can imagine. Um, yeah. So that's why in 30 years, there's 200 issues because we were doing more for a while there. But six is the general rhythm. And uh, um, it's it's been a good rhythm. And Sometimes I've thought, well, we should do more, and then sometimes I thought we should do way less, but it always kind of st- stayed on six issues a year. Sure, yeah, that sounds that seems like a pretty good. And given like how much is in each issue, and how many articles there are, and how much work it is to get out a single issue, I, c- I can imagine that that even that doing it every two months is a pretty can sometimes be a pretty hectic rate. Yeah, and there's a lot of overlap. So we'll be, I'll be putting one issue out into the stores. Another issue is being laid out. Another issue is being planned. There's usually about four different issues that are in process at once. And in terms of just the the reach, so for for some people, like for me, you know, ever since I've been in the astrological community, I've been sort of aware of TMA, and I know that it's just been this sort of thing that's that's around that is. You know, just a, a great publication that that most of the astrologers that I know read. But for those that are maybe just coming into the community or haven't heard of TMA before, um, how would you describe it, and what is the sort of circulation of the publication? Well, the Mountain Astrologer has been. It started very slow and humble, built up very slowly over the first ten years, especially the first five years. Um, the peak of our print run was in the early 2000s. So especially after 9-11, there was a lot of interest and there were were quite a few orders for subscriptions the year following 9-11. 
But so in the early 2000s, we were printing maybe 26,000 copies, 25, 26,000, somewhere in there. And then over the course of that decade, it uh, started eroding because of the the trend toward people getting information online. And we didn't go digital till I threatened to go digital in 2006 and my staff threatened mutiny and the readers said, no, no. So uh, they actually, my staff made me do a survey because being a fire sign, I was like, this sounds like a good idea. I think I'll do it. But um, I, I was definitely, so they said, take a survey. So we took a survey and about 80% of the readers said, don't you dare go digital. And they meant only digital. They didn't mean print and digital. Right. But I I was ready to go completely digital because of the environmental concerns about paper, fuel, energy, and so on. So I backed off that. And then in 2011, we went digital and kept the print. And we've been offering a digital edition ever since. So sure, there was erosion throughout that decade and the digital, I'd say about, you know, maybe 10 to 15% of our subscribers are really into digital only and the rest are still interested in print as well as digital. Sure. And and in terms of over the past decade, it seems like the format has been relatively um, stable or relatively standard in terms of what each TMA offers or what it does with some, you know, modifications and some, you know, uh, different columnists that are maybe coming and going. But for the most part, I mean, it's a, what is it? It's like 130 pages or how many pages is it normally? Well, it used to be 140 pages. Um but in recent years, it's about 112, sometimes 104 pages usually. And there's a student section in the beginning. There's six or seven feature articles. There are book reviews and software reviews. And then there's a forecast section in the back, um, as well as some humor peppered in, some cartoons and other occasional other interesting features. Sure. And yeah, so it's like that that format has been relatively standard and one of the things that's unique about it as well is you seem to really strive or push for a sort of diversity of different astrological voices and it almost seems like that's something that's been relatively constant at least you know as far as I've been following it has that largely been the case i mean i realized in the early days which we'll we'll get to in just a little bit that it wasn't always necessarily that many authors but it seems like you are consistently trying to make um make the the magazine or the publication open for different approaches to astrology and almost acting as like a showcase for different approaches in some sense yeah that's true and that's been true pretty much from the beginning um i myself have been interested in all types of almost all types of astrology um different schools and yeah i've been very curious and have Done, you know, I've done not a lot of in-depth research or study, but a lot of horizontal exposure. So I've been checking out all these things, all these different ways of astrology happening in different schools of astrology over the years. And so I feel like in, in the mountain astrologer's role is to be sort of a, one of the hubs of astrological information. And there's a responsibility with that to be fair and to be inclusive 
and, you know, kind of Aquarian about it. So I've just always naturally wanted to do that. Sure. And and I think that's a great way to describe it. And that's actually why I was interested in talking to you today, partially is just because doing that for 30 years and trying to create a platform. I mean, TMA is the, that's very similar to what I've been trying to do with this podcast in terms of mm-hmm. showcasing and giving a platform to talk about and have in-depth discussions of many different approaches to astrology. And, and doing that for 30 years, I think that gives you a really unique view probably on the astrological community, sort of being privy to all the different approaches, but also some of the different debates and different even like fads or eras like that was one of the questions that i have that maybe i could ask you right now which is just have you seen different distinct like eras or fads or other things like that come and go in the astrological community that have been like distinctive for a period of time or i don't know that just seem to have a lot of excitement behind them at different stages compared to like a different decade where there was something else going on well, yeah, TMA started in 1987, and by the early 90s, uh, seemed like there was a lot of attention being paid to Chiron and the asteroids, uh, the four main asteroids at the time. Okay, right. So, so like Demetra George's book would have just come out in like the mid 80s, asteroid goddesses, and so right. in the early 90s when TMA was coming on the scene, that was one of the big things was it studying the asteroids. Yeah, that was something that. Um, we put more front and center uh, for a while. Of course, there's always been interest in Pluto from day one. Um, as far I wouldn't call them fads, but I would say that there was a period of real strong interest in um, Vedic astrology in the mid-90s. We did, in June of 95, I believe it was, we did a theme issue on Vedic astrology, which was received really well. And sold out fairly quickly. And then we decided, since there are a billion people in India and Vedic astrology is the primary astrology there, why don't we don't uh, devote at least one article every issue for a while to Vedic astrology? And, you know, there were mixed mixed reception to that. Some people, some readers were thrilled. Other readers accused us of running nothing but Vedic astrology in the magazine because they read one article and didn't like it. So, yeah, that was a, a that was a strong uh, time for that in the mid the mid to late 90s. That's really funny and that makes sense because I think it was like in the late 80s and early 90s that Vedic astrology that a lot of western astrologers started getting really interested in Vedic astrology and I think it was like one of the main western organizations. I think it was like the American Council for Vedic Astrology was set up around that time in like 1994 so that would make sense then that that would have been you know one of the times when when a lot of people were talking about that and, and that would have then shown up in TMA in that special issues uh yeah. that special issue you did yeah and TMA i mean if we saw something that seemed to be emerging or new or interesting we tried to cover it throughout the years uh so yeah, we're <laughs> we're trying to reflect the astrological community back to itself as 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 best as we can. Now we don't always have the editorial firepower to edit. Like for instance, st- statistical research articles are difficult for us. We don't have someone on staff who can reasonably edit, reasonably well edit that. So we 
Occasionally, if the article's juicy enough, we'll find somebody outside the staff to work with on projects like that. But uh, so we, we're we're limited, but we try to really reflect as much as many facets as we can of what's going on in astrology. It's difficult. We have limited space, limited uh, budget, you know, limited time. But we we do our best. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that was something I was talking about to somebody recently, where it seemed like. Um, now that you mentioned that, that scientific um, testing and attempts to validate astrology scientifically, that that was much more popular or there was a lot more energy behind that in the 1980s, but then that it sort of died out in the 1990s. Do you, do you feel like that was reflective or is that an accurate statement in terms of your perception of, of seeing things from TMA's perspective or uh, not necessarily? I'm not sure. I think I don't know about died out. I think um it just kind of has its ebbs and flows. Uh I remember we did an interview with um actually we didn't do the interview directly, but Bronwyn Elko Elko did an interview with Dr. Percy Seymour, who was trying to show a mechanism but through which astrology worked, a physical mechanism. And uh you know, that was a kind of a big splash. I think that was in the late nineties that we ran that. And it was it was run on the internet quite a few times after that in various places. So yeah, there the scientific approach and trying to prove that it's still alive and well. It's just there are times when it's really more in the air and times when it's receded. Sure, that makes sense. So, I mean, that is interesting just in and of itself, the notion that there are like trends in the astrological community or there's different periods when the astrologers are more focused on something or more excited about something new, like a new concept, whether it's, you know, we were just talking about the asteroids where until a few decades ago, there literally weren't, um, you couldn't pick a, you couldn't buy like an ephemeris. For the asteroids, so you really it was something that you couldn't really even use in astrology, or you'd have to go through great trouble to do so. Whereas by the 1980s and afterwards, it was something that you could, not only could do, but there was astrologers writing books on it. And it was becoming a actual sort of common technique. So it's interesting to think of like new things like that, but then also other times like trends of things that sort of like come and go and then return back again as a sort of cycle of some sort. Yes, the cycle. I remember L. H. Morrison did uh, a lot. He was very supportive of the research into the asteroids in Chiron, and uh, I remember Eleanor Bach had an, an ephemeris out for the four asteroids that I used quite a bit <laughs> in the late eighties and early nineties. Yeah, that it's it's really interesting the way things emerge, and sometimes they stick. Like Chiron stuck pretty well. And sometimes they don't stick, and you never hear about them again. Right. Like I'm trying to think of. Can you think of anything like that in the 30 years that seemed like it might have been something, or it was going to become more popular, but then it didn't stick around as long as you kind of expected? Yeah, I'm sure I can. Right, sure. Right at the, that's, yeah, it's right kind of a difficult moment. question. I don't want to make that. I don't know if that would be. I'll have to send my. Um, Part of my brain into the file cabinets to retrieve that one. So sure. maybe in a minute or two, I'll have that. So, and in terms of other trends, you would have seen like the revival of of traditional astrology in the in the mid to late nineties and going yes. into the two thousands as well. Right. Correct. Yeah. 
uh, and then you know that you know had some some weird and interesting side effects. Like I think Rob Hand, one of his first publications where he was trying to promote whole sign houses and talk about this as a recent discovery, where they went back and translated a bunch of uh, Greek and Latin text from two thousand years ago, and they found that the original or that the most prominent and popular system in ancient astrology was whole sign houses. And I think it was in TMA that he published his first article on that, which eventually became his little monograph uh, titled something like whole sign houses, the, the oldest house system or something like that. But his art- that article first appeared in TMA, I think, right? Yeah, it was, I think, in 1999. I think it was in 99. Yeah. Uh, it was a two-part article, quite quite hefty and thorough. Yeah, that was that was a you know, that was a good one for us. That that was, and the nice thing is, is you get your education through these articles. So, <laughs> just reading them and editing them, you just learn a lot. And yeah, and you right. know, at at that point, we were busy enough, or I was busy enough. I should speak for myself, even though my staff pulls most of the weight here. Um, I was busy enough that I wasn't able anymore to keep up with. The new, what's new in astrology, except what came through the stuff we were working on. And I've suffered from that for about 20 years, not being able to keep up and not able to, you know, research and study the way I, I would have otherwise. But that's just part of, you know, my role. And that's, that's fine. Yeah, I, I can increasingly relate to that as the main books that are new that I'm reading at this point are the ones that are specifically for you know, issues or for episodes of the podcast or interviews that I have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so so something like that is interesting where it's really humble origins in some ways having Rob Hand publish an article where he's trying to not just present the history of whole sign houses, but also make a case for it being a, a useful technique or approach. And that wasn't really, as far as I can tell, something that took off that quickly because when I came to the astrological community or became aware of it in the mid 2000s it's not like a lot of people were using whole sign houses but here we are almost 20 years after that after that original publication of that article in TMA and I've seen at least 3 or 4 I just saw one the other day on Facebook a, a poll of what is your primary approach to house division and Placidus was of course the first but consistently these days I'm seeing whole sign houses as the second most popular answer and mm-hmm. at least like like three or four four poles. So it's interesting to see, you know, such a, a gigantic shift of something like that of a, a major basic technical doctrine of house division just over the course of like a 20-year period and seeing it the origins of that reflected in an article in TMA back in 1999. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. So um yeah, so there's other things like that. And then of course, over the past decade, there's also been the discovery of a number of other uh, new planetary bodies, and I know that that's something that you guys have featured some articles on from time to time as well, like um, Eris, for example, right? Right, and before that, Sedna. It looks like Eris is going to stick. To me, it looks like it, you know, and be um, researched more and utilized more. And I know yeah. there are pe- people out there that are using all of them, and that's great. And maybe some of the other ones will stick too. Sure. Yeah, I'm really interested. After talk, I talked to Kieran Legrice in the last episode, and he mentioned his book on Eris and what his actual approach was to trying to write that book and understand the meanings of this new planetary body. And that was actually the first time where I, f- I felt really interested in looking into that more 
Uh, so I'm hoping to follow up on him with that at some point in the future to to do an interview about that. And there's also a new book on Sedna coming out, um, a big thick book on Sedna. I haven't seen the book, but I've seen the ad for the book, which will be coming. The ad will be in the June July issue of TMA. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, so let's back up a little bit because part of what I wanted to do here was I wanted to get a little bit of like an oral history of the magazine and and the origins of it because like from my perspective, it's just by the time I came into the community, this was the premier publication in the astrological community, and it still is to this day. So it's sort of when you come from that perspective, it's something that you just take for granted that it's always been that way, and you just assume it's always been around. But it actually did have a specific starting point 30 years ago uh, in 1987, right? So maybe first, tell me a little bit about your background. Like, Where are you from, and how did you first get into astrology? Okay, so I was born in Cleveland and um, did a little traveling in my early 20s. I got interested in astrology suddenly when Uranus transited over my north node in the fourth house in Sagittarius. I okay. got and on, is your data public? Uh, yes, it is. It's, or do you mind sharing it? Yeah, it's August 7th, 1956, 640, that's 4-0, a.m., Eastern Daylight Time, Cleveland, Ohio. Okay, so you've got 16 Leo rising? That's right. Okay. So anyway, I got a, when that transit happened, and of course I, I had had my chart done once for 15 minutes at a party. So that's all I really knew about it. I didn't know much about astrology. I just knew what a lot of people know who haven't studied it yet. I got on a bus, went to the public library, got a shopping bag full of books, Rob Hand, Alan Oaken, various other, you know, the books that were available in the late 80s that were in libraries, and just started studying, started doing practice. In the the late 70s? I'm sorry, in in the early 80s. Sorry. Okay. Got it. it. Just Just want to make sure. Yeah, this was in um, 82. Okay. So, um, yeah, got on, yeah, started studying everything I could, started doing practice charts on friends, just plunged in. I had no, I had a part-time job as a waiter at the time. I think there was a recession going on at the time and jobs were hard to find. And I was living in Rhode Island at the time. Anyway, I got back to Cleveland a few years later and, you know, Buzz Myers and Sandra Lee Serio and some other astrologers in Cleveland who were, um, we were hanging out with going to the local astrology groups, you know, just getting kind of steeped in, in it and learning more and more. Then I ended up uh, going out to Colorado um, in 87 and was um, kind of floundering around doing a couple charts a week, not making much money, not having much money um, at all, and uh, just kind of getting by. And then I decided, okay, I was at that point 31, and Saturn Return was working on me still. Right. I, why, why did you move to Colorado in the first place, by the way? Uh, it's just beautiful there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mountains, you know, the whole thing. So ended up in a little town above Boulder called Netherland, which was pretty windy and snowy. And in November, I just one day, um, and I used to sit around and drink coffee and do kind of this 
intuitive astrological research, you know, with the zodiac, dividing it different ways, thinking about rulerships, thinking about asteroids, thinking about harmonics, <laughs> you know, so that doesn't pay very well, right? So, sure. Uh, I mean, so I wish anyway, it did. Maybe you could start a Patreon or something for that nowadays. I don't know. Well, in a sense, it paid well because everything else I did after that came out of that. So, but uh, yeah. So anyway, one day I went to uh, have some coffee and French fries at this local burger place up there, and I had uh, a college paper, the uh, University of Colorado newspaper, and there was an article about Rocky Flats nuclear weapons facility where they made plutonium triggers and the protests that were going on in the history. And I brought my ephemeris and I was looking it up and I said, oh, it started really close to a lunar eclipse. Not a big surprise. But I so I looked at the chart for that and I said, I'm going to write an article on this. Um, but before that, I had, I had said I was trying to promote my services and I made a flyer uh, for my charts, trying to do more charts. And of course, you put a flyer up 10 minutes later, it's covered up with a lot of other flyers, especially in Boulder. So I thought I need something to make a bigger splash. So how about a little newsletter? And I only had, I don't know, maybe something like 80, uh, 50 bucks to spend on it. So I typed up, I typed it up. Uh, but I'll get to that later. So I decided I needed something more. So as I was sitting there working on this first article, right around the time I started, I had just had this idea, well, I'll I'll do an article and I'll do some forecasts and I'll make it a newsletter and I'll print some and put them out and I'll call it the Mountain Astrologer. So that's what that chart is for, is that moment. Okay. So the, the moment you started writing, what basically ended up being the first article for the Mountain Astrologer was, what was the data for that again? Yeah. And it was also the first time I got the name, the name of it and the first time I kind of decided to do do the newsletter. So it was all kind of a conception moment, but it was also the start of work on it. That was November 24th, 1987. Um, I used 12.05 p.m., but it could be plus or minus five minutes. And that's Nederland, Colorado, um, Mountain Standard Time. Okay. So, and it's like 18 Aquarius rising? Yeah, somewhere right around 17 or 18 Aquarius rising. Okay. Got it. All right. So, and that was, I mean, I mean, the chart, just looking at the chart, I guess we could mention a few things. So it's like Aquarius rising with um, a conjunction of Saturn, Uranus, and Venus in late Sagittarius. Mm -hmm. um, the sun is also in Sagittarius. Uh, Mercury is conjunct Pluto and Scorpio. Mm -hmm. And let's see, the moon is in Capricorn, Capricorn. And, and Jupiter is in Aries. Yeah. Moon squares Jupiter. Right, so the moon's applying to a square within like a degree and a half or so of Jupiter. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. The north node. The north node is right around zero Aries, I believe. Is that the north node over there? I yeah. So. so north yeah. node's at zero Aries, and it's just getting ready to shift into to retrograde back into Pisces, but it's right at zero Aries. The true, the true node, yeah, would be, I think. Right. All right. And Ch Chiron's over there in Gemini, I think, in the fifth house or. And it's what's interesting about Chiron is in my chart, I have Chiron in the sixth house in Aquarius, seventh if you use whole sign houses. If you use regular uh, Placidus or Coke, it's in the sixth. And my workplace is pretty well described <laughs> by Chiron and Aquarius in the sixth. Um, 
you know, Chiron was kind of the mountain astrologer himself, I think, you know, kind of holing up in a cave and doing all this stuff. And so sure. it, it, I think it fits. And then Aquarius being the rising sign of the business of the magazine itself. Yeah. Well, and it's really funny because it's almost exactly reversed from, from your chart where you have like 16 Leo rising and the mountain astrologer has like 17 or 18 Aquarius rising. Right. So from the magazine's point of view, I'm the main relationship. Right. Because I'm a triple Leo. So I I guess we have karma together, me and the magazine, huh? Right. Well, then, and then it's also funny because then that whole Sagittarius stellium that the magazine itself has is in your fifth house. And so it's kind of like your, your child <laughs> in some sense. And I, and at the time it was a transit. So for me, so it was a creative project, right? Right. It's the fifth house pretty well. Definitely. And, and the other thing that's funny is just, so you have your Saturn at 26 Scorpio. So you had your Saturn return in, in like the fourth house right before this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like you started TMA basically just after completing your Saturn return. Yeah. I'd say the energy shifted right around my 31st birthday where I was getting more serious about actually interfacing with the world in a way that was, you know, going to be viable and sustainable. As I, I mean, I lived for a long time with just, you know, making enough money to get by and being dependent on some people. And that gets old, of course, especially when you turn 30, 31. Yeah. Well, well that's what's funny and actually relatable about it to me is that you have Saturn and Scorpio. And I was going through my Saturn return. And for years leading up to that, I've been working on the, you know, my book for 10 years and all my friends were taking bets on whether I would finish it during my Saturn return. But then I, <laughs> I didn't. I actually got through my entire Saturn return without actually finishing the book. But then I finally did post-Saturn return, uh, I guess, around the age of what, like 31 or 31, 32. So it would have been basically the same age you were just post-Saturn return once Saturn went into Sagittarius and publishing my book. And there's something a little weird about that where it sounds like for you it set you up to be able to do TMA and you ended up being in like the time and the place and the right location to to actualize that uh, mm-hmm. but the Saturn return was almost more of a sort of sort of realignment and setting the foundation for that rather than actually accomplishing that thing at that time yeah i would view the saturn return as a window um that uh, about a 2 or 3 year window there's something i've remember called the uh, shadow Saturn, let's see, the shadow Saturn return, where when transiting Saturn reaches the point of your solar arc Saturn, which is about 30, 31 degrees past your natal Saturn, that's when the Saturn return can gel or finish, or there's some important, um, you know, event connected to that. So that idea is out there. Um, I can't recall right at the moment. I might have heard it in a couple different places. Can't recall exactly. If sure, I think they think there might be a TMA article on it. If you go to the TMA index online and type in Saturn return or you, you know do a find for it, you might you might come up with it. <laughs> Probably we right. read an article on it. Well, that's actually a good tip because most people don't know about that, that you actually have an online, like a PDF on your website that is an index of every article and every author and every article title that's ever appeared in the in print in the magazine, right? Yeah, I think it goes back to issue number, well, back to about 1990, 
perhaps, or 92. So not the first couple of years, but after that, yeah, everything's in there. And it's sorted by author. There's another one sorted by topic, another one, I mean, uh, subject, another one by uh, issue date. So what wow. we do is we, we just make PDFs and post them. They're already sorted. And, and then you can do finds and find authors or articles, topics. Yeah, it's really good. Sure. And then a bunch of your issues are still available um, in back order that you can buy specific issues from the past that are still available in print. Yeah, we have print uh, print magazines going back to about 2002, a couple of issues before that as well, but mostly 2002 to the present, with some, some are sold out. Um, and then digitally, we just recently made uh, 1997 through 2006 available. I had them scanned, um, and those are available to purchase. Um, so we wow. have digital going from nine, uh, digital going from 1997 all the way to the present available. Okay, that's amazing. I didn't know that. So people can actually buy back orders of back issues digitally at this point. Yes, um, they they come in sets. They can't they can't buy like individual issues from that time because of our infra- digital infrastructure is somewhat limited. But we um, currently have all those issues available digital only. Uh, from 97 until about 2011, there are PDF files. From 2011 forward, there are flip books with uh, clickable links and you know search capability of all across the board. So um, yeah, that's when we started doing our digital issues in 2011. So they're a little more sophisticated. Okay, awesome. Um, but speaking of sophisticated or on the opposite end of that, so back to this first yeah, right. news, new, newsletter. First newsletter was not that sophisticated. Could you describe it or like what was the first issue of TMA like? The first issue was typed on a manual typewriter Okay, um, and using whiteout and also to get the headline, the mountain astrologer at the top, which had to be bigger than typewritten, let's face it. Even I had my standards back then, even though it was humble beginnings. I went down to the library and they had one of those digital, I mean, the dot matrix printers. And I was able to type out the kind of pixelated, you know, maybe like 48 point font size, the mountain astrologer. And I pasted it on with a glue stick, ran to Kinko's and made, um, uh, I think I made something like 80 copies of the newsletter on 11 by 17s folded. So two of those nested, made an eight-page newsletter. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I didn't have to know how to do a magazine because this was like really basic stuff. So anybody could figure that out. I just had to be able to write a few things. And I had to have 50 bucks to pay Kinko's, right? Sure. So so um, I took that those 80 copies and I would start going around to stores. And like a typical Leo, since it was my project, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world, you know? Right. So I had some enthusiasm for this scrawny little newsletter that wouldn't even stand up in the rack. It would flop over. There were no staples in it. Who needs staples when you only have two sheets tucked in? So um, I decided, well, if I just put them out, a stack of them at, you know, Alfalfa's or some store in Boulder, people pick them up, they'll put them in their bag, they'll never look at it. Or they won't have time. But if I put a price on it, maybe somebody will pay attention. But I have Mercury in Virgo, Jupiter in Virgo. It wasn't going to be a high price, right? 
So I put uh, 59, 59 cents. I figured anybody could shell out 59 cents for some forecasts. So I told the store owners that they could keep 40% of the profit, which is a whole quarter. <laughs> right. And at the time, I thought that was perfectly reasonable. So I I had like five or six stores that agreed to take it. And one of them put it in their magazine rack with the other magazines. And another one of them put it right up. I think it was the college bookstore or something up on the hill in Boulder. They put it next to the cash register. And there's this little coffee shop called Penny Lane. And he took some. And uh, what happened is uh, a bunch of them sold, you know, maybe sold 20 of them or something. And that was encur- that was encouraging enough to a Leo to do it again. And, and what plus, did the first one contain or what were what articles did you write for it? Well, that was the article on Rocky Flats nuclear facility and the chart of the, uh, the chart of that facility, which I was using. I didn't have a time. So what I did is I used the lunar eclipse that occurred that day. And I used the lunar eclipse as the chart, which okay. I probably I probably wouldn't do that today, but I did it then. And uh, I, you know, hand drawn charts, you know, and that sort of thing. The circles weren't perfect, but not bad. And uh, then I did a 12 sign forecast, uh, like two paragraphs on each sign, two long paragraphs, one for each month. And I called it the December, January issue. And I put it out there. Wow. Plus my plus on the back cover, my ad for my readings. And I probably got a few readings out of it. So, so I did, this I, came out in what, like December of 1987? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Probably... Um, early December sometime, maybe the first few days. Got it. All right. And and so it sold you sold at least twenty copies and it was encouraging enough that you decided um after the first issue to do another. Yeah. Yeah. I I I liked well for one thing, you know, it fits my chart pretty well to do this. And it it was a personal creative project which is feeding the Leo planets in my chart. And um it gave me uh, exposure for my readings. So it met all, met all those goals. And then after I did a couple of issues that way, I, a friend lent me his electric typewriter and I did another issue or two on that and expanded it to 16 pages. And I put some humor in it, which turned out to be a popular feature of those early magazines. Sure. Then, so you, you started doing the cartoon asteroid cartoon or astrological cartoons, basically. Yes. Um, or I, comics, I, I should say. Yeah, I had a friend uh, that I co-invented these little glyphoid characters. There are glyphs that have hands and eyes and things, you know. And anyway, these these cartoons, this style of cartoon, we co-developed it. And uh, the first five years of TMA, there were a lot of the, these glyphoid cartoons in in the magazine. Plus, we did some. Uh, I did some articles that were humor, like gift guide for the 12 signs, you know, the perfect comfy recliner chair for Taurus, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> sure. It was, so you, it was a lot of fun. So even from a er- very early stage, there was a blend between like relatively serious sort of almost investigative articles versus uh, something lighter uh, and more sort of like comical in order to have a full like spectrum of different different sort of approaches to astrology in some sense. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the early TMAs were like a baby version of the current energy. So it had like 
I think where's that moon? That column that tracks the moon has been there from the start. After the first couple of issues that started, the forecast section's been there from the start. Articles have been there from the start. Humor's been there from almost the start. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, in the first few issues, you you started sort of pushing to subscribe or pushing to expand relatively quickly after that point, and, and pretty early on, you had um, a, a relatively early supporter that sort of helped you and almost mentored you in that process, which was Al H. Morrison, right? Yeah, he was. Um, yeah, it hadn't occurred to me that I could sell subscriptions to this. I was just doing it in the stores. And one day, um, one of the distributors uh, contacted me and said, hey, your magazine is in our racks at uh, the health food store in Boulder. And I said, oh, I didn't realize that people owned the racks. I thought it was the store. They said, no, no, it's ours. He said, why don't you just let us distribute it for you? I said, great, because they they were doing like 35 or 40 stores in the Boulder, Denver area. So... He said, yeah, send us 350 copies or whatever. And that's how it started expanding. And I guess one of L. H. Morrison's relatives came across it somewhere in Colorado or and sent him a copy because she she knew that he would want to see it. And he sent me unsolicited a $10 subscription check, even though I wasn't advertising for subscriptions. So he was the first subscriber. And that gave me the idea, oh, you know, subscriptions, good idea. <laughs> That's how um, clueless I was about any of this. Basically, I was like a researcher and a writer, and I had to learn. I had to learn everything else. Right. So he then became the one of your biggest proponents in terms of helping you to expand pretty rapidly from that point, right? Yes, he was. He was uh, supportive. He wrote articles for us in the early days. He uh, at one point. When I was telling him I needed to uh, reach more people and get the word out to other astrologers, uh, he smuggled me a list of the NCGR membership names and addresses, because at the time I wasn't a member of any of the organizations. And he said, basically, you know, didn't come from me or don't tell anyone or whatever. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, I used that to... Um, uh, a big mailing of about three thousand, two or three thousand copies in the magazine. So, I had a friend in Cleveland who was an astrologer who loaned me some money so that I could do the extra print run. And by this time, the magazine—this was in '89—and the magazine was, I did a thirty-six page version of the magazine, and um, that was a sort of a big splash at the time. So that's how, that's how the magazine started growing. So you sent out basically like free copies of the magazine to a, a large part of the NCGR membership? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I got a lot of subscription checks back in the mail. And um, then it started rolling from there. Then I could take that money from the subscriptions and invest it in the next issue and so on and so forth. It was rocky. It wasn't. It wasn't financially smooth at all until it started getting more stable, maybe by 1992, that financially, you know, it was a little more secure. Sure. But you you kept reinvesting back in the business. And, and one of the things that you did pretty early on is you started um, 
incorporating other other writers, basically other authors, and contacting some established astrologers and asking them to use excerpts from their books, right? Correct. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I think in maybe 1989, um, I started doing that. But um, as far as r- r- articles by other writers, that that was early on. That was by issue number three or four in um, 88. I interviewed Buzz Myers in 89 and interviewed, there was one woman I interviewed, an astrologer. Um, her name is Nan DeGrove. And I think she was sometime during the first year, she was a local astrologer and I couldn't pay her, but I said, I'll give her a lifetime subscription to the magazine. And she said, nice. okay. So she's been getting it for 30 years. <laughs> wow. That's great. And so you're, you're already doing interviews. And then who are some of the people that you contacted like when you started getting sort of bigger astrologers or started doing some of those book ep- excerpts? Like whose books did you get excerpts from? Uh, let's see. There was Dimitri George, I believe, um, Donna Cunningham. Uh, I don't know if Stephen Forrest was a book excerpt. It probably was. I think he was one of them. He, I know he provided an article, if not a book ep- excerpt, pretty early on. And, you know, Steve was a strong influence in when I was studying astrology. Um, the the Inner Sky, The Changing Sky, his early books. Yeah. So I was thrilled to um, get articles, anything from him, and uh, also from Donna and Demetra. And then also um, Bill Herbst was particularly supportive in the early days and provided some articles, Al H. Morrison, a number of other people. Okay. And then this is, we're basically in like the late eighties, like 1989 timeframe. And there, it seems like in terms of your chronology, there was also an important turning point there in 1989 with the, I think it was like the second United Astrology Conference that took place in New Orleans that year, right? That's right. That was my first exposure to the astrological community aside from the you know, the Cleveland community and the Boulder, Denver community. So I met a ton of people and I barely made it there. I had enough money to get there. I didn't have any money for a room. Uh, I had maybe enough for a few meals. And uh, an astrologer named Ron Pierce had a trade show table there that he shared, he was willing to share with me. And uh, then uh, we, so that's how I, that's how the larger community started becoming more aware of the magazine. Okay, so you basically you didn't have a lot at that point, but the magazine was growing and it was almost two years old, a year and a half, two years old at that point, and you decided yeah. to go to this big uh, astrology conference. It was only the second United Astrology Conference, which is where all of the major organizations pool their resources to hold one big mega conference. Mm-hmm. And you showed up there and you were able to share a a trade show booth with another astrologer in order to promote the magazine and it ended up being kind of a hit there at the conference, right? Well, I don't know if it was a hit, but certainly people were talking to me, picking it up. You know, some, you know how it is, astrologers, if they see something new they haven't seen before, they want to check it out. So they did. And um, also, mostly it paved the way for a lot of new articles. I, t- I remember riding the shuttle back to the airport. With I think Bruce Schofield was there, and on the way to the airport, we're talking about an article he could he could write for us. So <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. It, Brilliant! It, it was great. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, and you were still sort of scraping by at this point. And one of the things that was funny in the, because you wrote an editorial um, for NTMA on the 30th anniversary uh, late last year, just a few issues ago. And you talked about how you're, you're kind of broke during that period. So you slept under the table at the, in the trade show in order just to like get, get by at that point, right? Yeah, it was kind of like a canopy bed because the drapes came down from both sides of the table and the, the rug was very plush. It was like a thick, plush rug. And there, <laughs> there were security guards at the trade show who knew I was doing that and were cool with it because this is New Orleans. And, <laughs> and I'd slept there the first few nights. And I think after that, Alexandra Karakostas and her sister allowed me to crash on the floor in their hotel room. And I hadn't known them before the conference, but that's they were very open people and they were just willing to do that. So yeah, so things started looking a little better as the conference went on. <laughs> right. That, that's so funny because it's just one of the things that people sometimes you do sometimes in order to get to one of these conferences uh, when you're younger is, you know, whatever, whatever it takes. And sometimes that, that can be it or and it's funny how sometimes that can lead to great connections and making a, a lifelong friendship, like I think you did with Alexandra, because she's been uh, a sort of an, a columnist for TMA for a long time now. At this point, right? Yeah, yeah. We fell out of touch for a while after that, but then we became friends, and and she ended up writing for us, yeah, regularly. Yeah, yeah. A lot of friends from that conference. Um, Bruce Schofield, for instance, wrote a column for. Well, he's still writing a column, but on and off through the years, he's been one of the main contributors. Really enjoyed working with Bruce. Okay, brilliant. And so, yeah, so by this point, uh, the magazine's taking off. We're getting into the early 1990s. And you, um, just in terms of your personal life, um, you met your wife during this time period around 1990, right? Yeah, I was in Michigan because um, I did a lot of back and forth to the Midwest, um, to Cleveland and southern Michigan, northern Indiana. I was living at near Ann Arbor at the time, and I met Kate on the phone because she had decided to try to help me get the magazine into more stores in Berkeley. She heard about the magazine through a friend of hers who was also doing that in the Bay Area for for me. Because back then, I relied a lot on people to uh, do stores in their area and, you know, stock the shelves, collect the money and all that stuff. So she was offering to do that. And that's how I met her. And at first, we just had some brief conversations. But later in, 19, in early 1990, we started having longer conversations. And one thing led to another. And by the middle of 1990, I was living in Berkeley, sharing her apartment. And we've been together ever since. So that was great. And she also had editing skills, which I did not. So for the first three years of the magazine or so, uh, two, two and a half years, um, I was doing very light editing, um, you know, spell checking, commas, does this make sense? Can I follow the article? That was about it. And she had some more skills. So she became the first editor. And wow, we did okay. We did it together until 92 or 93 when we started hiring uh, other employees. Okay. So she, yeah, she was literally your first, the first editor of TMA. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
All right. And so by this point, the magazine, by the early 90s, the magazine is starting to take off. And at this point, you guys started organizing uh, a series of conferences, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had an idea. It was actually on the train ride out to meet Kate in person for the first time after talking to her on the phone for a few months. And as the train was passing through Utah, I had this idea for a conference where, you know, people would come, anyone could present. It was very Aquarian again, very open. And it, I would call it Planet Camp, and it would be in some retreat center somewhere in the in nature. So I did that in 91 and had just, you know, like 40 people show up. It was pretty skimpy, but it was fun. So I decided three years later to do it again in, in 1994 at the Shinoa Retreat Center near Philo, California. And we had 100 people that time, and it was beautiful. And I'd say at least half the people did presentations. Uh, we did some panels that were prearranged, but it was like, if you show up and you want to teach, well, there's a space over there by the picnic table, or there's a room over here. And with the cabins and camping, it was just gorgeous weather, and everybody loved it. We did a talent show, campfires, circles, things like that. It was a lot of fun. It was wow. it was great. But it was a ton of work. And at the time, we were doing nine issues a year. So I think that cured me of doing conferences, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think everyone has this idea about like how great it would be to put on a conference or like how much fun that would be. And then you start organizing it and, and suddenly realize just how much work goes into it versus the, this, you know, whatever the payoff is at the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a little, so, there's a little glory, but you have to really pay for it. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of work and a long time in coming building up to that. Just seeing how long it's taken. Like the three organizations to get together UAC this time has been over the past several years has been just uh yeah, just exhausting even just watching that. I have no idea how how they're doing that, putting it on, and now it's almost there. We're we're about two months away now. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Sure. So okay, so you did that last conference in California, and around that time you actually relocated, you and Kate relocated to California, right? Yeah, we ended up in Grass Valley, Nevada City area of California, and we've been here ever since. I moved a lot before that, but the business just got large enough uh, and with employees. So been fortunate that we really like the area, and so we're happy to be here. Sure. So it's even though it's you know the name was originally the Mountain Astrologer because you were in Boulder when you started it. It's not right. necessarily. Uh, there's are there any mountains by you? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, we're in the foothills, so um, the Sierra Nevada are just a short drive up. Okay, uh, we're twenty minutes from some real mountains. <laughs> okay, I guess that that still counts then. Yeah. Um, so by that point, we're in the mid '90s, and as you said earlier, the sort of peak print circulation occurred in the early 2000s, basically not long after after like 9/11, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what year. was the circulation at that point? We were printing about 25, 26,000 copies uh, at that point. And of course, you know, it all depends on how many sell in the stores too. But the, the maximum number of subscribers just were, was about 10,000 in the maybe 2003 or 2004, somewhere in there. And so then, as I said, you know, with the internet, um, the, amazing amount of information that's on the internet and Facebook. It definitely took a bite out of the magazine 
And so we, we had a period of contract contraction and it thinks one astrologer explained to me that, um, the declination, the progressed moon's declination, there's a cycle where it was going from north to south, and then it hit maximum south declination. This is the magazine's progressed moon. And then it starts coming up again. And it kind of fit the expansion and contraction of the magazine, that cycle. And then at some point around 2009, 2010, the contraction period stopped or leveled out, and now it's been just in a stable place um, for the last, you know, four or five years of you know not growing a lot, not declining a lot, just kind of humming along at a comfortable level. Certainly enough to pay the bills and pay the employees and keep it going, but a little more modestly than before. Less pages and you know. Still, there's a lot to read, as you know, in each issue. Yeah, I mean, there's still a, <laughs> an amazing amount of content in each issue, and you know, you guys have definitely continued to grow and adapt um, to the times. And I think that's one of the reasons why it it still is a mainstay in the community and is still one of the main hubs for for communication and for you know finding out what's going on in the community and what people are are focused on or, or getting a sort of pulse what the pulse of the community is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that you guys have been offering the digital version since the late 2000s definitely helps that. So you think, or your estimate is that it's something like 10 or 15% of your subscribers are like just digital only? Yeah, it's about 15% maybe. Yeah. Okay. And the, re- the rest, um, of course, if people get print subscription, digital is included, they can access it if they register for it. So, but yeah, a lot of people are, you know, digital only and that's what they want. So, and it's great for overseas subscribers because the postage is so expensive, so they can just be digital only and not pay as much. Sure, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I mean, you know, TMA is unique in the community because it's very high quality in terms of of what you do, and you actually hire professional editors to help authors to improve their articles and to like work through them with them instead of just just printing anything. I mean, you you have a, a serious sort of focus on graphic, having a good graphic design and layout, and some focus on aesthetic appeal. Yeah, and and I mean, there's just many ways where compared to even some of the org, the, the publications that the organizations put out, they because they're more just nonprofit organizations and they mm-hmm. don't put like a lot of money into them or anything. You can you can sort of tell the difference between like a TMA article or or an issue of TMA versus something else. I feel like yeah. So if you can pay your editors a decent amount and you're not relying on volunteers, of course the you can put more energy into it and the quality will be reflecting that. We have a great great editorial staff and one person in particular, Nan uh, Nan Geary, who's been with the magazine since. Um, uh, let's see. She's been with us since 1998, so 20 years now. She's been an amazing force in keeping the editorial department organized, applying uh, quality control, and just working with the writers in a great way. And um, she is like a huge reason why the magazine's still going. 
Yeah, definitely. I know in any articles that I have published in TMA or back when I was still doing the electional column that the article was always just like 200, 100 times, 10 times better than what I originally submitted as a result of her serious like editorial input. And that was really my first experience in working with a professional editor and seeing mm-hmm. why that's actually important and why you need to hire an editor when you're publishing something, especially like an article or a book or something. And and yeah, I think that's a really crucial experience in some ways then for people to get, especially as we move into this age where self-publishing is becoming more common. And sometimes when people dive right into that, they don't know what the benefit is of having like a professional editor working with you or to have a mm-hmm. professional layout person help you lay mm-hmm. things out or, or other things like that. Yeah, totally. Definitely. I think, you know, you can always tell people who are experienced with writing because they, they're more receptive to the editing. Whereas people who haven't done it a lot, they're more fearful and uh, in some cases, really controlling about what happens to their commas and their their sentences. Uh, right, that's really funny, and it, well, it kind of ties in with one of our my listener questions, which I wanted to ask, which is: Has TMA helped launch any careers, or you know, have there been any younger, like up and coming mm-hmm. astrologers that you featured relatively early on in their careers that later ended up becoming more prominent in the community, but? where you were working with them like relatively early on? Well, I would say, yes, we've helped launch a lot of careers. Um, launched by ourselves? No, I doubt it, but uh, sure. help, helped launch. There are probably a few along the way that that uh, use TMA as a major springboard to uh, prominence in the community, but uh, usually it's it's usually it's just that we're, we're, we're helping and that we're a part of that person's uh, publicity drive, drive or effort. Yeah. So I can't, uh, let me think, do I? I would say that probably I'm the only one who's used TMA exclusively to <laughs> become more prominent. <laughs> and the sure. rest, rest have just, we've just helped them along. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know, you know, for me, you know, I published articles there you republished an article of mine on sect i think around like 2010 uh from one of my websites and my we did a two part series together in like 2011 or 2012 which was my introduction to hellenistic astrology and if you read that it really is like a shortened condensed version like a 20 or 30 page version of my book which you know took another 4 or 5 years to come out but you can see um glimpses of that in that series that i did for tma back then mhm yep yeah, and yeah. another another person who's really contributed a lot, and hopefully it's helped his career is Frank Clifford. He's done an amazing amount of work with us in the last five to seven years, and um, including supervising some great theme issues and create yeah creating some theme sections in the magazine. Uh, the music issue was his idea. That was in 2014, where astrology and music was the theme, and. Lot of articles on techniques, and he's been really helpful, really important person to what we're what we've been doing lately. Sure, yeah, those themed issues have always been really interesting. I think he did one on like modern psychological astrology, and he did one on like the music issue, uh, which was really interesting. Yeah, those have always been uh, really interesting. 
Yeah, and he's working on a project for issue number 200, which is coming up in August. He contacted 11 astrologers and asked them to write about an astrologer who greatly influenced them. Um, And most of them are deceased astrologers. There's one who's still living. But uh, we're primarily looking in this particular project for uh, deceased astrologers who were either legends or mentors to these people. And so um, that project is going really well, and all those articles are in, and they're going to appear in the August-September issue. Um, Okay, wow. That sounds great. Do you want to hear the names of some of the astrologers that are being written about? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So Isabel Hickey, Dane Rudyard, Andre Barbeau, Alice Bailey, William Lilly, Lois Rodden, Linda Goodman, Thaddeus Valens, Cyril Fagan, L. H. Morrison, and the Gawkelins. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, so that pretty- should be an amazing issue. So that's that's going to be a whole theme. That's a themed issue, basically. So that'll be the whole focus? Well, no, it's about half the uh, content of the magazine. It's, uh, it's about a 24-page section in the magazine. And um, so each each contributor will have a two-page spread with, uh, in most cases, the chart of the person being written wow. about. So Awesome. Yeah. So Frank pulled that together for us for that issue. And it's really a good, really good idea. So we might do more in the future uh, with maybe living astrologers. We'll see. We'll see how this one is received. Sure. Yeah. It's really important sometimes uh, to collect some of that history and to identify some of those connections. I mean, even your connection or your story about, you know, Al H. Morrison and his helping you and playing that instrumental role really early in your in the process mm-hmm. of getting TMA together is like a really interesting and unique and important sort of little bit of history that people might otherwise not know about. So I was glad we got to talk about that a little bit here. Yeah. 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 All right. So yeah. I had a, as we're sort of hitting into the home stretch of this, I had some general questions, both some that I came up with and then some that were sent in today by listeners. I was hoping I could run by you if that, sure. that works for you. Yeah. Why not? So, um, I don't know if this is one that you can remember. I'll just start throwing these out. If you have a good answer, then great. If you don't, then just say we can just pass or go on to something else. But okay. what is you've done a lot of interviews with TMA over the years. And I was curious if you have like a notable interview that you really remember doing or that stands out to you. Well, um, I've enjoyed my interviews with Rob Hand. I've done a few of those. And actually, you and I did one together uh, a, f- a few years ago. And that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was fun. We we met up with him at Norwalk and sat down and recorded the interview in person verbally and then later transcribed it. Yeah, right. Um, but I remember some from the 90s I really enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed uh, with, uh, you know, Mary Plum is our book reviewer and has, has been a TMA editor for a long, long time. I think Mary first started working with us in 93. Um, and Mary and I sat down and interviewed Charles and Susie Harvey back in 1997, uh, and that was really a lot of fun. Um, uh, we also inter- uh, we also interviewed Stephen and Jody Forrest together back then. Um, I think that's in the same issue, the June of 97 issue, which is one of the ones that's digitally available now. Um, 
there, there are so many interviews that I've enjoyed or I thought were really great. Um, there's the, the index, the TMA index online has a whole, uh, a whole different PDF file for just the interviews. So people can get an idea of how many people we've interviewed over the years. For a long time, we were doing one interview in every issue. Lately, we're doing less just because of our limitations, but yeah. Sure. Uh, so one of the other questions I had is, what are some of the biggest debates that you've seen in the astrological community or the most contentious issues that people have written like letters to the editor about? Well, let's see. There's the tropical versus sidereal zodiac. That's always a hot debate. House systems is always a hot debate. What else? You know, my, let, me, let me just kind of diverge here a little bit. The, sure. the thing that I've noticed over the years is that when I started, it seemed like there was a lot more competition and um, divisiveness in the astrological community um, okay. in the early 90s. Now it seems like there's a lot more cooperation and a lot more mutual support going on. Uh, seems like it changed maybe 10 or 15 years ago, or it's maybe just steadily evolved. So that's a huge difference. Um, that's, that's kind of interesting because I almost would think that the community would be more, um, that's almost like more diverse at this point because there's more different approaches and different traditions and everything going on. So there's almost like more differences in some way. Mm-hmm. But but it's interesting then that you feel like there's actually less competition or, or that there's more openness nowadays than there were there was like twenty or thirty years ago. There's definitely more openness. Um, there's there's definitely more cooperation and mutual support. There might be more diverse opinions or diverse, you know, ways of doing it, um, diverse techniques. But the the spirit of of um, inclusiveness and um uh, is is much stronger i think and okay. and the organizations you know maybe were more competitive with one another back then seems like it to me anyway sure so maybe the organizations get along a little bit better although even that's not always the case but the fact that they're doing like a uac together is definitely a good it's good a good, sign. Uh, good sign yeah yeah um, of course okay. I, i'm i'm not in i'm not um close into any of the organizations, although I'm a member of a few of them. <clears throat> so I don't have a real close-up look at that, but that's how it seems to me. Sure, sure. So um, there's a few listener questions. One of them, I'm paraphrasing Don Champin, at, who's on Twitter, at Goddess Astrology. She says, roughly, she said, what is the future of print publishing and how, how have you continued to adapt and stay relevant over the years in a digital world? So part of that, of course, was you know doing the digital edition that we've talked about a few times. You also launched the TMA website, and there's pretty frequently like blog posts by Mary Plum there. So so it seems like that's one of the other ways that you've tried to adapt a little bit as well, right? Yeah, I'll try to keep at least you know one foot in the digital world. Mary uh, edits our blog; uh, it comes out every other Monday. But I'd say that the main way to stay relevant is just to provide what people want. So um, there are a lot of people, I'm sure, who, well, just doing good content, um, people will find a way to get it. So if they have to get the print magazine, even though they prefer digital, if the content is good enough, 
a lot of them will do that. Some won't, but a lot of them will. Um, so being behind the curve technologically, um, you know, isn't a, a deal killer. It's just you're not reaching as many people as you could. And, uh, you know, that's that's how I look at it. Yeah, it seems like you you guys definitely continue to stand out because you've never let the quality drop. Like it's always a consistently high quality in, in what you're producing and putting out every every two months. And I think that's one of the things that that stands out to people. Yeah, I hope so. Definitely. All right. Um, let's see. Another question was from SJ Anderson on Twitter at SJ Anderson 144. He says, I'd be curious to hear his thoughts on the biggest changes he's seen in the astrological community over the years of involvement. And two, what are your thoughts on the recent discussion about the waxing or waning popularity of astrology? So this is an episode I did a few months ago where there's been a bunch of um, media coverage recently in like the New York Times and and, and the Guardian and a bunch of other you know, news organizations have published articles saying that astrology appears to be getting more popular, especially with millennials. And we had a discussion a couple of months ago, sort of trying to figure out if that's true, if it's true that astrology is getting more popular or if it's gotten less popular in some ways. Because one of the things that's hard for me when I try to think about that question objectively is seeing how, for example, the the book publishing industry is going through such massive changes and so there's not as many astrology books being published uh it seems like as there were even like 10 or 15 years ago so that in some areas it almost looks like there's been a decline whereas in other areas it does seem like it's sort of surging in popularity um how do you feel or where do you stand on that i really don't know i really don't know um i've been especially in the last you know 8 or 9 months i've been pretty consumed with keeping the magazine going as well as um, supporting my wife, who's going through some serious health challenges, so I've been barely following the news at all, and uh, I've been not able to um, keep up with some of these debates in astrology or some of the media coverage of it lately. So I really don't know. I hope that it's becoming more popular. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. Sure. And, and uh, the biggest changes over the years of involvement in the astrology community, besides what I already mentioned about the cooperation, um, just the the interaction, you know, just the the communication level is so massively more intense through Facebook in particular and um, other other online mechanisms. So I'd say those are the biggest changes. There used to be a magazine called The Mercury Hour, edited by Edith Custer. That was sort of like <laughs> it was sort of like the the uh, a, a magazine that came out I think monthly, and it was like the internet for astrology. It was just letters letters that people were writing to other astrologers, and um, you had to look through this magazine to see what astrologers were saying to each other, and uh, that went on to I think about the year two thousand, when Edith I think she passed away around that time, and it was so that's. Uh, how far things have come. Right. Yeah. That's a huge shift in terms of that and in terms of just astrologers' ability to communicate and have conversations and, and debates and other things like that. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Uh, so let's see. Another question I had from a listener named Sheila Rower was, "What kind of articles do you wish that you had more of, or is there like any area where you wish that you had more article submissions of a certain type, but you never seem to seem to get them, or not as much as you would like?" That's a great question. Um, the kind of article we wish we had more of is well-written articles, well-organized, well-written, depend uh, regardless of the astrological topic. Uh, because as we've talked about, we we try to cover all the bases in astrology, and sometimes we we get a lot of Pluto for a while, and then we're saying no, no, no Pluto for a while. You know, <laughs> it's enough right. for now. Um, or for a while it was Chiron. You know, um, but um, the, you know, most of what we publish, I'd say, two thirds of it of the feature articles are just from things that come in, just from queries that come in. So writers query us. We have writers' guidelines on on our homepage online. People can read. So we'll get a query or an article proposal, and we'll look it over, and it'll take us a little while. We'll get back to the writer and say yes or no in terms of whether we want them to send the whole article uh, for consideration. And um, But two-thirds of what we publish is from that mechanism, and then some of what we publish is uh, like, oh, I'll say, oh, we've got to cover Uranus going into Taurus. We haven't had any sub- uh, proposals for it, so we have to go out and find a writer. So we'll contact a writer and that we know we've worked with before who will be able to produce a decent article, and we we approach them. And that's how the rest of the features get filled, unless we're doing a theme issue or Frank is doing something special or whatever. and then. Schedule that in. Okay. But generally, you do take article submissions, or is it best to contact if, you know, a listener or up and coming, up and coming astrologer is interested in trying to get something published with you? Is it better to contact you with like a finished article, or is it better to make a pitch for like a pitch for a potential article first in order to see if there's even interest in in publishing it? Yeah. It's better to make a pitch, um, way better. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is if it's a topic or an approach that we know we're not interested in for whatever reason, we can tell the person right then, save them the trouble of writing it. Um, usually, the and we'll, we also ask for a few paragraphs of their writing so that we can see what kind of writer they are. Uh, so that it's important to read the query guidelines online and to send, uh, I think it's like a, you know, kind of two-page proposal, including some sample paragraphs from the article. Uh, that that really is streamlines it. And also, if there are any course corrections, like we could say, oh, we're interested in this, but you didn't mention, like it's an article on the 12 houses, but you're only talking about the first three. What's up? You know, that kind of thing. And so um, we could, we can help them increase the chances of, getting an article accepted by using that sure. process. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. And let's see, last two questions. Uh, really quickly, one of the questions from Demetrius on Twitter at VeganEnd, he says, um, what keeps what keeps you going or what keeps you motivated? Um, especially, I'm thinking, this is me personally, uh, when you have those deadlines every two months, I mean, what keeps you pushing through or have you guys ever like missed a deadline and not made it in that two month time span or have you 
been pretty consistent with that for a while now? Uh, we've never missed a deadline, and we've never been seriously late. A couple okay. days, a couple days late, maybe uh, once in a while. Um, but th- we've been very fortunate <laughs> because we have a very small staff, and anything can happen to people. So right. we we've been very lucky. Uh, what keeps me going is partly responsibility. I mean, I'm taking subscribers' money, right? So I better make make some more magazines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, sure, that's um, a good yeah. But also also just that the my job fits my chart, and so it's been relatively um, easier to do because of that. And uh, it's also, it could be my karma <laughs> to do this. Uh, feels like a mission that um that my role in the community is to serve it's an opportunity like once you're in this position you know you just want to keep doing it because it's helping people connect it's helping writers it's helping readers it's helping advertisers it's helping everybody and it's helping us pay for our house right so <laughs> right i mean was there a moment that you realized at some point i'm i'm guessing like in the 90s that it was playing an important role in the community and that it was it was fostering a lot of discussions that otherwise might not be able to happen in the same way. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, that was and people were telling us that, so it was it was nice to hear that. Yeah. Sure. And and that's a good point that you mentioned. It's not just the people writing articles, but the advertisers is actually a huge component of TMA because that's often like for me when I'm when I pick up TMA, that's actually one of the first things I look at in order to see what's going on in the community. Is not just what are people talking about in like feature articles or, or whatever, but actually looking and seeing who's doing advertisements for for consultations or for products or conferences or or what have you. Like TMA, because it's become the main sort of community standard in terms of astrological publications, is also probably one of the primary places where people. By advertisements to get the word out about things, mm-hmm. and so that's another thing that I, I use it for, and that's another important community role that it plays is is providing a, a space for that. Yeah, and we have a professional directory, so readers who are looking for an astrologer can go go to that section and kind of shop through the listing of astrologers and 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 find somebody hopefully that will work for for them getting a reading. Yeah, and I think that's really crucial and really important, and that's one of the additional. Pieces that makes it so good, especially for newer astrologers that are still getting oriented in the community and trying to figure out what's out there. Yeah, because a lot of people uh, who are, you know, it's out there in the stores. It's out in Barnes and Nobles. A lot of those stores. It's in some of the Whole Foods stores. It's in a lot of metaphysical bookstores and newsstands. So people are stumbling across. I mean, just think when you first started getting interested in astrology, and you went to a bookstore and you saw a book and you're like, oh, what's this? You know, and some people are doing that with the magazine. And they're that's their introduction to the whole community. Yeah, which is just amazing to me because I, I it took me a few years before I found it. And I wish I had found it earlier in my studies rather than later, just because of the great cross section it gives of different things that are going on right now and different reviews and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um all right. And the last one is just um Adam Madison asks, "What are TMA article slash magazines that are must reads? Like, have you ever thought of doing like a, I don't know, like top ten issues or or like major articles from the back catalog that people should should check out or should read or something like that?" Well, um, it's kind of like asking a parent who their favorite kid is, right? Right. 
but uh, they're all good. You know, I actually, I don't remember the time last time we did an issue where I thought, oh, this one's kind of flat or this one didn't work. They're all, you know, there's just so much energy that goes into each issue. I mean, editorial energy, writer's energy, advertise. It's like a, it's just like a little bomb, you know, that goes off <laughs> uh, sure. when people read it. So, um, yeah, I, I can't, I can't pick any particular issues. I mean, I have some personal favorites that I'm kind of prouder of, but like when we did back in 2005, um, 2005, we did a theme issue on uranium and cosmobiology, which was a really difficult issue for our staff to do because they weren't that familiar with it. Mm. And um, it turned out really well. You know, the Vedic theme issue in 95 was a lot of fun. And some of the theme issues, I guess, are are a little more fun and a little more creative than some of the others. Uh, the music issue was great. That was in 2014. Really enjoyed that. And, um, you know, Shannon Garcia was helping us illustrate at that time. And uh, she did a great job on bringing the magazine, giving it a little more of a modern look and helping that way. So that was a nice development. Yeah, um, I, re- I really appreciated Shannon's efforts in updating some of the layout and design. And I think she she pushed you guys into using like Adobe InDesign or something at that point a few years ago, right? Well, we were using InDesign, but we weren't, the, we didn't, basically we had a designer who was on staff until 2007 and then she passed away sadly and then i had to take over the job of design which i had done earlier for the magazine but i don't have skills i'm not a i'm a horrible person to be doing design but i did it anyway for um about four or five years and uh so the magazine sort of deteriorated in terms of design and then shannon came along and rescued us and brought a lot of stuff up to up to speed and now we're we're working with Sarah Fisk who's a great person to work with and is uh for the last I don't know I'm going to say 3 or 4 years 3 years doing uh, the design you know primarily doing it. it's her her work um so yeah it was it's we're you know we definitely paid more attention to, to design in more recent years Oh yeah, and I just remembered what that's actually one of the best questions that I forgot to even ask. Like the the covers of TMA are always one of the most striking and unique things that always stand out. When did you guys start doing those like elaborate like color covers? Well, the first full color cover was back in I think 95 and then we went to coated paper a few years later, you know. So everything's taken forever, you know, with this magazine. It's it's got a Taurus quality to it, where it's it's probably my Taurus midheaven, where things just plod along and just slowly develop and get better and better as time goes on. But um, yeah, the the covers are funny because a lot of times we pay a lot of attention to the content. We'll throw a magazine together. We do it backwards. I think a lot of magazines are like, here's the cover we want to sell magazines, and now what do we put inside, you know, to support the cover. We're the other way around. It's like, what the heck do we do for a cover? You know, we've got like seven or eight disparate articles, some of them nerdy, some less nerdy. What are we going to do for a cover? You know, okay. So we get desperate and as deadline approaches, either we contact an artist and find something, or in some cases, I go to the NASA website and say, 
what galaxy would look good? You know, what's generic, you know? <laughs> right. So there's a lot of desperation with covers. And a lot of times the cover doesn't even get uh, addressed until about a week before press time, or even in some cases, three or four days before. And sure. So uh, if you like the covers, that's a good sign. <laughs> no, yeah, no. I mean, I know it varies, but it, your process sounds very similar to my process of trying to pick the artwork, the cover art for each episode of the podcast, where sometimes you've got an idea in mind, or sometimes it's really inspired or comes together well. And other times you're just scrambling to find anything at the last minute, since that's like the final thing you have to do before releasing it. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. this, this, uh, you know, upcoming issue we're working on the June, July issue. We've got a lot of different s- stuff. We've got an article on structural astrology by Charlotte Wenner, um, which is a system that's coming out of the, came out of the Netherlands. Um, using the black moon and the black sun or the black luminaries. Um, that's something new that we're learning about. Um, we have an article on horary. We've got uh, Chet uh, Zerdowski's writing on Saturn and Capricorn. We have an article on quintiles and quincunxes. We've got an article on the sun and a think piece about symbolism and astrology by Brian Clark. Um, did I mention Samuel Reynolds is in it on the first lunar nodal return at age 19. So we got all this diversity. So how do you do a cover for that? <laughs> right. You've got to pick out like one theme or try to do some overarching thing, but usually it just ends up being reflective of like one specific article. Yeah. Yeah. It might end up being Saturn and Capricorn. I don't know. It might be. I haven't got sure. there. Obviously, I haven't started thinking about that too much yet. The cover. Right. All right. Well, I think we're we're about out of time today. So I wanted to mention or give some information where people can can basically learn more about TMA or sign up. And the and the best, biggest thing it seems like that people can do or the best way to really follow the magazine is basically to subscribe, right? Yeah, that's definitely the most helpful to us. I mean, when you buy a magazine in the store, the distributor in the store get a big chunk of that and subscriptions are a direct way plus so so basically you pay less if you subscribe you get the magazine directly you don't miss an issue you don't have to hunt around for it if the store happens to be sold out and you can get digital only or print which includes digital access so uh it's a good way yeah yeah and i mean it's only what's well, like 46 dollars or something to subscribe for a year which is six issues so you get a new issue every 2 months mm-hmm. and as a subscriber i always get mine like super early like definitely before it's ever on the stands it seems like uh i end up getting mine in the mail yeah it can vary sometimes the stores get it a little bit before certain people will get it in the mail but it's pretty close um and you know if they're digital only well the thing too is that once once they subscribe um, they get digital access. So digital, like for the June, July issue, for instance, the digital issue will go up at the end of April. The stores won't even get it till, you know, first or second week of May at the earliest. So yeah, you get the digital access first and then your print copy comes in the mail, uh, around yeah, this that's, later. That's usually what I do is check out as I scan through my digital version first, as soon as I get it. And then I go through more thoroughly once the print one shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and that's a good way, I mean, to, to support you guys directly in the work that you're doing, um, by subscribing just because it's a more direct way of 
you know, sort of making a point that 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 you want to support the work that's being done there, so that you know, buying sort of one-off magazines at, at a store or something is is kind of okay, and that's obviously another option. Like if there's a most Barnes and Nobles or sometimes other large local bookstores will carry issues of TMA, and you can pick up a, an issue there. But sometimes subscribing directly is the better way to to actually support the work that's being done. Yeah, it's kind of the original Patreon, isn't it? You know, yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean, uh, okay. to the same extent that people like support this podcast by subscribing, and that's pretty much the only way that I've been able to do it, especially mm-hmm. to the extent that I have. Like you literally started something very, very similar 30 years ago with this magazine that just came, took off and became a sensation and became an important uh, like touchstone in the community, sort of following a very similar path, but just in print. Yes. And I'd like to think that, you know, the magazine has influenced public perception of astrology because so many people have, you know, stopped, looked through a few pages of it, never bought it, never subscribed, but maybe it influenced them and, and, you know, gave astrology a little bit of a professional um, flavor for them. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, it's like not to, dismiss like some of the other sort of pulp astrology magazines like like what del horoscope or or whatever the other ones are that are maybe somewhat higher circulation in terms of being on like um in the magazine section of like uh grocery stores and stuff like that but when you you know have tma like out there being a representative of what astrology is really about and what astrologers are doing like on a normal magazine rack or occasionally it seems like whole foods or something will even pick up some issues of tma and you'll mm-hmm. see them mm-hmm. there very prominently i remember being very excited about seeing just standing around in a checkout line in like 2012 and having like a stack of tmas you know be like right there i thought that was really good <laughs> coverage for astrology yeah we did a, a article on monsanto that Eric Francis Coppolino wrote, and one of our distributors decided Whole Foods would really want that, uh, you know, topic to be featured. So, the a number of the Whole Foods stores, a large number, took that particular issue. So that sure. happens once in a while, sure, yeah. But you sure. know, um, Dell Horoscope's a good example of a of a magazine that's uh, using really good writers, and they have a. A different market than us, a little bit. They're out in grocery stores and so on, but they're doing a really great job, and some of the other ones too. So it's like, uh, yeah, just kind of we're all in this together, right? And I think it's important that we as a community really stick together, support each other, and and uh, you know, really be a community. Sure. Yeah, and and you've been really good about doing that in terms of supporting other magazines or sometimes other startups. Like um, a few years ago, there was another startup magazine, and I think you guys actually took out an ad. Oh, sure. In the first issue of that, right? Yeah, Hexagon. It was called, and I try I try to be very supportive because I know how what he was getting himself into, how difficult it is to do that. So yeah. Sure. All right. So people can find out more information about the magazine at mountainastrologer.com. Mm-hmm. And you can, there's a subscription button over on the left where you can find out more information about the different subscriptions available. Mm-hmm. Um, you there's guys also, also have back. There's also a free sample issue on the top orange bar of the homepage. You can look through, I think it's the June issue from last year. You can just see what it's like, the flip book, the digital flip book, and see what the digital edition's like. 
Okay. That's a good, that's great. And you guys also have a bunch of great like intro articles and stuff on your website as well, right? Yes, they're great. And they've been there for 25 years. <laughs> okay. Uh, oldies, but Old, oldies, oldies, but still there. Yeah. Um, you also have some back issues um, on CD, and then it sounds like you're making most of your back catalog available in digital editions at this point as well. Yeah, so people can just get the back issue sets and as part of their digital library, so it'll all be in one place. It's not uh, it's a de- it's not a download, but it's uh, access online. So whenever they're online, they access it, and then they can download from there. So okay. it's not a direct download, but yeah, you can download from there. It's TMA has a funky way of doing things sometimes because I've um, been so busy doing a magazine, I haven't had a chance to be modern. <laughs> sure, no, I like I like it. It's a nice blend between between the two. Um, all right, and then so everybody can find out more information about that on your website at mountainastrologer.com. And then lately, um, more more recently or more personally, there was. Um, a campaign you've been going through some you and your wife have been going through some stuff and a friend of yours actually launched a, a you caring campaign at youcaring.com in order to help you guys get through some some stuff that you've been going through recently right yeah medical expenses yeah my wife has been going through a big health problem and um, we're, we're trying to turn it around and so the the fundraiser is i think a few days left and it's been it's been really supportive um so uh, yeah, we really appreciate all the support. A lot of people listening to this have contributed, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, a lot of astrologers have shared it and have, have contributed to it. But uh, yeah, if anybody else wants to contribute, I'll put a link to that on the description page for this episode at theastrologypodcast.com. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, people should definitely chip in to to help you guys out uh, since you've done so much for the community at this point and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on today just to say thank you for you know the the important and valuable role that you've played in the community over the past 30 years and uh, for raising the bar on astrology uh, I think I I really appreciate it and I know a lot of a lot of other people who do as well thank you chris i really appreciate you having me on and i really also appreciate your podcast and it's it's an amazing amazingly good quality whenever i've had a chance to listen i've really enjoyed it awesome well i was glad to i'm glad to talk to you today so um yeah so thanks for joining me thank you all right and thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time